Okay, well, why don't we go ahead and move on to part two. And why don't we say a word of prayer and we'll move into the second section of our study here. Father in heaven, thank you for the privilege we have of studying from your word. Be with us as we enter into this next section on the book of Romans. May it give us a deeper understanding of the truth for our time. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So, I had some good questions during the break, and I'll mention a few points from that. Let me give a brief review of what we talked about in the first hour. We saw the power of the gospel, that Paul, he's a servant of Christ, separated to the gospel of God. The good news is that Jesus was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. And as one of the brothers pointed out to me, unfallen angels have proven that unfallen beings can keep the law of God. Jesus, in his perfect life, proved that a, a being who had a fallen nature could also keep the law of God, showing that we as humans who have fallen natures can keep his law. The other point that I wanted to bring out that I didn't say too much about is when it says um, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. What does it mean when it says you shall live from faith to faith? That's living from faith experience to faith experience or growth to growth. It's the Christian growth experience and it's like the parable of first the blade then the ear, then the full corn in the ear. You have a plant that grows and it's perfect at every stage but only at the end is it ready for the harvest. And God will have a group of people at the end of time who will be ready for the harvest as well as they understand this message. And the power of the gospel is the power of the gospel because we see the life of Jesus Christ demonstrated in the lives of his believers. Now, we've basically covered the key points of the gospel, yet Paul goes even deeper in the following chapters. And what he does under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is actually quite amazing, the way he sets up the book of Romans. And we're not going to read in detail much of the rest of chapter 1 or all of chapter 2, just because it gets um, into some pretty basic points. But here's what Paul does. After he announces the power of the gospel in Romans 1 verses 16 and 17, he goes on to show why we need the gospel. Because none of us can say, hey, I'm pretty good. You know, there, there's some people that Jesus probably needed to die for, but, but I'm one of the ones that I've lived such a pretty good life, it's above average, that he didn't really need to die for me. Now I know none of us say that, but Paul is basically showing why all of us need the gospel. So at the end of chapter 1, what he does, verses 18 through 32, is he shows that a judgment is coming against the wicked. Verse 18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And then he goes on and he talks about people who basically ignore the fact that God is the creator and they worship and enjoy the things that... God created rather than worshiping the Creator. And then they go on and, and do things that are so foolish, vain, and ridiculous that they reach a point where in verse 26 we see that God gives them up unto their vile affections. And you see that Paul talks about when humanity becomes debased, homosexuality becomes one of the sins that inevitably follows. And he goes on and he talks about various awful sins. He lists them, covetousness, maliciousness, envy, malignity, um, all of these various issues. And when you come to the end of Romans chapter 1, 
basically what you see is a description of horrible, awful, wicked people. Perhaps you could say it would fit the description of the gangsters. The druggies, the people who go out and shoot and murder people, they don't have God on their mind at all and they're just really horrible bad people. And when you come to the end of chapter 1, as a believer in God, you say, man, it's a good thing that God is going to pour out His judgment against those wicked homosexuals and murderers and gangsters and druggies. I'm so glad that one of these days God's going to take care of those people. They are so wicked. And then in Romans chapter 2, Paul turns the tables on us as believers. Notice what he says in verse 1. Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doest the same things. Now, he's not saying that the professed Christian world is going out and practicing open homosexuality, open murder, open druggies. Yes, there are closet homosexuals in the Christian church, but they, well, unfortunately in modern times, some people think you can even come out and practice that in Christianity. But by and large, throughout the years, there might be these horrible, wicked practices in Christianity, but they were closet practices. Paul is not saying, oh yeah, you, you guys are out there openly doing the same thing. What he's saying is this. You may be a professed believer in God, but you sin too. They go out and commit homosexuality, murder, drugs, alcohol, all of that horrible, awful stuff, but we who promote and uphold the law of God, we are going out there and we have ministers who are committing adultery. We have husbands who are cheating on their wives. We have families who are fighting with each other all the time and the spirit and love of Christ is never there. We come to church and we put on our nice clothes and we say, Happy Sabbath, how are you? Oh, I'm great. Yeah, well, things are going wonderful. And we were just having a nasty argument on the ride over to church. And Paul is saying, look, those wicked people in the world, they will receive the wrath of God and the judgment if they don't change. But you know what? The same judgment will be given to you if you don't change. So don't act like you're all wonderful and great. And it's sad to say that even in this last year, year and a half, I can think of at least three well-known Seventh-day Adventist ministers or leaders who fell into sexual sin. And that should not be happening among God's last-day professed people. But it's not just that. And Fitzroy mentioned it in the in the discussion panel this morning. You know, the Elijah message at the end of time is going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the hearts of the children to the fathers, because many of our home lives are a wreck. We can break down Daniel and Revelation, well, some of us might be able to, not as many Adventists can as they used to, and that's too bad. But some of us can break down the prophecies of Scripture. We can explain even perhaps the correct process of salvation. And yet we're moody, grumpy, and irritable, yelling at our spouse, kicking the dog, you name it, whatever. And we're not showing the righteousness of Christ. And so Paul is saying, yes, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. But the world is wicked. And you know what? Most of us in the church are too. We're just not doing the culturally unacceptable sins that the world is doing. Does this ring true to you? Is it hitting home? I know it hits home to me. Because I speak about these topics and then my old human nature likes to come rising up within, especially in my home life. And I mean, I have a good, happy home life. 
but that in my home life, that is where my weaknesses are most likely to show themselves. And my wife and I have a wonderful, happy marriage. Don't get me wrong, but I'm just saying, if I'm going to show my weakness, it's going to be in front of my wife. And if you're not married, if you're younger, it would be with your parents. Mom or dad says something and you just want to you know, push back at mom or dad. When you get older and you get married, then it's with your spouse. Um, that's just the, the progression of life. And what the power of the gospel that we're talking about is that it takes us from being like that, from not having a good, victorious, consistent home life, to actually being a Christ-like home where angels love to dwell. That's what we want, is it not? And you know, Jamaica here, this country, has the highest per capita of Adventists in the world. And I'm so thankful that I have the privilege to be on this island this weekend to speak here at a, in this country where Adventism is so prevalent. But my burden for the Adventism on this island is that the Adventism of this island will become a demonstration to the rest of the world church of what Adventism can do. Not just in numbers, but in the strength of the character of the people here on this island. Amen? So Paul, he levels the playing field. He's saying, you know, the world out there is really wicked, but we in the church, we have some problems as well. And you know, let's pick it up um, in verse... Not, well, now let's pick it up in verse 11. Verse 11, Paul says in chapter 2, For there is no respect of persons with God. So here's what Paul is saying. Yes, and in his time, he's referring to the terribly wicked people in the city of Rome. He's saying, yes, the wicked people in the city of Rome, or yes, the wicked people on the streets of Jamaica, they're in serious trouble. But you know what? God has no respect of persons. If you're coming to church and you are living a life of sin, God is not going to care if you're a world-famous preacher. He's not going to care if you've traveled the globe over or if you're a janitor, whatever the case may be. If you are living a life of sin, that's the only thing that God looks at at the end of the day. Are you... Do you have the righteousness of Christ or are you living your own life of sin? That is what it's all about at the end of the day. There is no respect of persons with God. Whether you are an unbeliever making no profession or desire for God in your life or if you are a professed believer living a life of sin, God does not give any respect to the fact that you profess to be a Seventh-day Adventist Christian if you are not living in accordance with, it, with His will. And then he goes on after verse 11. For as many as have sinned without law shall also perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. So in other words, the people who don't care about God's law, they aren't trying to keep it, they may no pretensions to trying to follow it, they're going to perish without the law. And those of you who know the law and profess it, you will be judged by it. That's what he's saying. And then notice verse 13. And this is sometimes confusing to people. And there's a verse that seemingly apparently contradicts this verse in chapter 3. But notice what verse 13 says. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. Now, then in chapter 3 he says, By the works of the flesh shall, shall, no, shall no one be justified. So, is there a contradiction? Because here he says, The hearers will not be justified, but the doers of the law shall be justified. Here's what Paul is saying, and we've already laid the foundation. By your own works, you can't justify yourself. But if Christ is not living out His life through you, and you are not keeping His commandments through His strength, you are not justified before God. You hear the sermon at church. You hear the powerful sermon that Dr. Walsh gave this morning, which for me was one of the most powerful I've heard in a long time. And you are sitting there, and your heart is moved. And you're just like, wow. 
I want to be among those certain Adventists that stand in the last days. I will stand through the great crisis of the time of trouble. And when the first little trial comes, you're swearing at your wife. You're kicking the tire. You're questioning, how could God allow this to happen to me? You're a hearer of the law, but not a doer of the law. And what God wants to do is to take you from being a hearer of the truth so that Christ can come into your heart so that you will experience and live the truth. Amen? So not the hearers of the law will be just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. And it's interesting. Notice verse 14. For when the Gentiles which have not the law do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves. Do you realize that the heathens out in the jungle of Africa, they have a conscience through which the Holy Spirit can work so that even if they've never heard the truths of Scripture, it's possible that they could be in heaven someday if they never have had an opportunity except to accept Jesus as their Savior if they follow the prompting of their conscience and, and follow what is right. And that's what the Scripture teaches here. And that's an indictment to those of us who clearly know what is right and don't do it even though we know better. And then verses 17 through 24, Paul makes it very clear why those who make a profession of faith but who don't live it, why they will be subject to the judgment of God as well. Notice what he says starting in verse 17. Behold, thou art called a Jew and restest in the law and makest thy boast of God. So in other words, you can make the application. We are Seventh-day Adventists. We have the last message of truth for our time. We boast in containing the last message of mercy to a lost and dying world. And verse 18 says, And we know His will and approve the things that are more excellent, being instructed out of the law. And then verse 19, And are confident that you are yourself a guide of the blind, a light of them which are in darkness. In other words, we are confident that we are teaching the truth to a lost and dying world. We show what is right. We show what is wrong from the Scripture. And in verse 20, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, which has the form of knowledge and the truth of the law. And then notice what he says in verse 21. Thou therefore which teachest another, teachest thou not thyself? Or in other words, are you not teaching yourself what you're teaching everybody else? Do you not listen to the very words that you are telling other people about what truth is? Thou therefore, er, and end of verse 21, Thou that teachest a man should not steal, dost thou steal? Verse 22, Thou that sayest a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? And again, even among professed present truth Adventists, this has been a problem in the last couple of years. That should not be. But it shows that we can have the head knowledge and not have it transferred into our heart to be an experience in our lives. So he's, he goes on to say, so you teach all the right things, but you go out and do the exact opposite of what you are teaching. And then notice verse 24. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you as it is written. Do you realize that we as Seventh-day Adventists can give God a really bad name. Do you realize that? People will say, man, I thought you were a Seventh-day Adventist and you just said that four-letter word? I mean, I'm not a Christian, but I don't expect you to talk that way. If that's the way God's last day, judgment hour, Christians are going to live, boy, it sure doesn't do anything for them. I don't think I need to mess with Christianity. You mean you're a Seventh-day Adventist and you struggle with your weight the way I do? You don't control your appetite the way I don't control my appetite? Well, I mean, if you're a judgment hour Christian living in the last days of Earth's history, 
why would I need to become like you if I'm going to stay just as overweight as you are? I can keep having fun and not have to worry about some so-called judgment that's done no good for you. You mean you're a Seventh-day Adventist and you're a married man and you like to hit on women just the way all the other married men who are not Christians do? I thought you were a man of virtue. You mean you're a Seventh-day Adventist and you dress like the women who show up for the Oscars at the Hollywood movie shows? I thought you were a Christian woman. And yet our mentality has become, well, God won't cause me to be lost if I dress this way or eat this way or talk this way or act this way, so it doesn't really matter how I behave anymore, does it? And yet the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles based on how God's professed people live their lives. And what the Gospel is going to teach us is the Gospel will take us from not just being professed believers, but to be, to, it'll take us to being actual believers who demonstrate the life of Jesus Christ. That's what the Gospel is really all about. And you know, in the sermon today, talking about the three Hebrews who didn't bow down to the image, you know, they could have said, hey, we know that the Ten Commandments say, Thou shalt not have any other gods before me. Thou shalt now bow down thyself to them or serve them. But you know what? Jesus is merciful. He'll understand. Here's what I'm going to do. I'll bow down. I'll be tying my shoe. And while I'm tying my shoe, I'll pray to God and ask for forgiveness for doing something that I don't want to be doing. But you know, the three Hebrews said, our personal existence doesn't matter right now. The only thing that matters is the honor or the vindication of God's name. We need to have a generation of Adventists who instead of asking questions like, is this a salvational issue? They will be asking, will my actions vindicate the name of God among the onlooking universe and among the heathen of this world, or will it blaspheme his name? Will my dress, will my diet, will my actions bring glory to God's name? And that's the first angel's message. Or will they blaspheme his name? And the gospel is about developing a group of people who will experience the first angel's message of the everlasting gospel who bring glory to God's name. They are saying, we are not asking, is this a salvational issue? We're not asking, is, is there a minimum that I can get by to scrape through the pearly gates? No, we are saying Jesus did all for us. I love him. I will glorify and honor his name, no matter what the price may be. So instead of being a group of people through whom the name of God is blasphemed, we will glorify his name. Now notice, verses 25 through 29 are very important. Romans 2, 25 through 29. For circumcision verily profiteth if thou keep the law, but if thou be a breaker of the law, thy circumcision is made uncircumcision. Now he's talking about an Old Testament ceremonial rite, but the application is this. Your commandment keeping is only profitable if it's done from the heart. And let me show you how that's true. Continue on. Verse 26. Therefore, if the circumcision keep the righteousness of the law, shall not his uncircumcision... Uh, let me start again. Therefore, if the uncircumcision keep the righteousness of the law, shall not his uncircumcision be counted for circumcision? And then verse 27. And shall not uncircumcision, which is by nature, if it fulfill the law, judge thee who by the letter and circumcision does transgress the law? Now, Paul makes it clear what he means in verse 28. For he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But notice verse 29. But he is a Jew which is one where? Inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. Notice what Paul is saying here. He's using circumcision to make a point. And I, you all know what circumcision is. 
circumcision was supposed to be an outward action of the Jewish people to demonstrate an inward heart change, an inward circumcision of the heart. And it was a sign that they took seriously their inward heart chain. What happened was the Jews twisted that and they focused on the outward action and neglected the heart change. It was supposed to be reflective of a change in the heart, but instead it just became an outward action with no heart change. Ironically, Christians in a in a similar way have done the same thing today. We say that we are professed Christians and that we have the righteousness of Christ, that we are covered by His righteousness. But you know, the covering of the righteousness of Christ is only profitable if you have an inward heart change. If you don't have an inward heart change, you really don't have the outward covering of His righteousness. Just as the Jews, they really, even if they had the outward circumcision, they didn't have, if they didn't have the inward circumcision, their outward circumcision meant nothing. And they thought that their outward circumcision gave them salvation. They thought that the outward demonstration was what constituted salvation. And what Paul is saying is, is that actually it's the inward change that gives value and meaning to the outward sign. Likewise, the outward covering of Christ's righteousness for us only has meaning and value if we have an inward heart change, a heart surrender. He says you're a Jew not if you're one outwardly, but if you're one inwardly. And in Galatians, he says you were a Jew or if you were of Abraham's seed, if you were Christ, if you were belonging to Christ. So in other words, to be a Christian is not to have an outward covering merely you have that as a sign of the inward heart change. So, what's interesting is that many Christians try to use Romans to teach that Paul is teaching legal justification without a heart change, and yet Paul, right here in Romans chapter 2, says, wait a minute, you're not really a Christian unless you have a heart change. You can't have salvation if you don't have circumcision of the heart. And he goes on to talk about the circumcision in Romans chapter 4 when he talks about the Abraham, faith of Abraham when he says, you know what, Abraham was declared to be righteous while he was still uncircumcised and he only did the act of circumcision which was a sign of the seal of the righteousness of the faith which he already had because his heart had been changed. So when you come to the end of Romans chapter 2, you see that the Gentiles or the non-believers, they are condemned before God because they live wicked lives. And then the believers, the Jews, or in today's language, the Christians or the Adventists, we are condemned before God because we know what's right, we teach what's right, but we still do what's wrong. So we need the gospel too. A gospel that doesn't leave us in our sins, but transforms us and brings us out of our sins. So that's the first two chapters. Then you get to Romans chapter 3. And when you get to chapter 3, Paul asks the question that the Jews who were reading his letter, and what Seventh-day Adventists today who might be reading his letter, would naturally ask, well man, if someone who follows the, the promptings of his conscience is a law unto himself and he will receive salvation even though he's never heard of Christ, as Paul talks about in chapter 2, then what is the advantage of being a Seventh-day Adventist who understands the law of God and who understands the three angels' messages at the end of time, yet I'm struggling with sin? Doesn't that put me at a disadvantage? Because Scripture teaches to whom much is given, much is required. And if I'm not living up to all of this light, who can live up to all of this light? And I would just be better off to have never known all of this, and then I wouldn't be judged by nearly as much. 
And Paul answers that question here in Romans chapter 3. What advantage then hath the Jew? Or in our language, what advantage then hath the Seventh-day Adventist? Or what profit is there of circumcision? Verse 2. Much every way chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. What's the advantage of being a Seventh-day Adventist? Much every way, chiefly, we have the privilege of living at the very end of Earth's history. We have the opportunity to synthesize all the truths of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation and pre present to the world the most comprehensive package of truth, the most Christ-centered, comprehensive, Christ-uplifting messages that the world has ever seen. Who wouldn't want that privilege? Are we at, in a human sense a disadvantage for knowing all the truth that we have? Perhaps, if we don't surrender our life to Christ, but if we surrender our lives to Jesus Christ, we have the greatest privilege ever given to any human being. Adam would have loved to have been alive in our day. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, the patriarchs, they would have given anything to have the oracles of truth that Seventh-day Adventists have. So why are we embarrassed about our message? We have the last message of mourning and mercy to a lost and dying world. Why would we be embarrassed by that? Are we like the Jews of old who are embarrassed of their unique system of worship and instead they turn to the idols of the surrounding nations and said, why don't we bring in a little bit of idolatry to our worship services so that we'll still have Adventism but a little bit of idolatry so that we can attract other people to come to our churches. No, we should be grateful that we can be peculiar, distinct, with a message that prepares the world for the soon coming Jesus. The third angel's message in verity of justification by faith that will prepare a people to stand in the day of God who have the character of Jesus so that the earth is lightened with His glory. I don't know about you, but I'm thankful to be a Seventh-day Adventist. Are you not? How many of you are thankful to be Seventh-day Adventists? Amen. We have the most precious truth to give to the world. Don't ever be ashamed of our message, ever. It's a beautiful, powerful message for our time. So much every way chiefly. Now notice, <clears throat> verse 3, For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? Okay, so what if there's some Seventh-day Adventists out there who say, you know what, I don't really believe what the Bible says. I don't believe that we can really have victory over sin. I don't really believe that we can be like Jesus. I don't really believe that the Gospel is so powerful that it can turn us into living demonstrations of the righteousness of Christ. I just don't believe that. Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? Notice what Paul says, God forbid. And notice what he says. And this is powerful. Sometimes people miss this passage of Scripture, but it's absolutely powerful. Notice what Paul says. Okay, so, so there may be people out there that say, I don't believe. I don't believe that God can give us victory over sin. I don't believe that we can really have the righteousness of Jesus Christ fulfilled through my life. And Paul says, Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? Notice verse 4. God forbid, yea, let God be true, but every man a liar. Here's what Paul is saying. The Gospel teaches that the righteousness of God is revealed in the lives of the believer. Let God be true, but every man a liar. Let the whole world say that God cannot produce a group of people who will have the righteousness of God demonstrated in their lives. And Paul says under the power of the Holy Spirit, let God be true and every man a liar. Because if God says it, it is true and man is lying if they deny that truth. Let God be true, but every man a liar. 
And then notice what he says. As it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. Do you realize that this verse is teaching that God is on trial? That God is facing a judgment. Let God be true, but every man a liar, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. God is going to be justified in what he has said, and he will overcome when he is judged. Now the question is, what are the sayings of God that are being put on the line? In what way is God putting His name on the line so that the authority of His Word is being put to the test so that when the judgment comes, the onlooking universe will say, God, you are vindicated. What you say is true and what man said is a lie. What is it that God is going to be on trial for? Do you want to know? Paul has the answer to the question in the same chapter. Romans chapter 3 and verse 26. Romans 3, 26 says, To declare, I say, at this time His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. So there's coming a time where the righteousness of Christ is going to be declared to the world. It's that time that we talked about when an angel comes down from heaven, the earth is lightened with his glory, and the righteousness of God will be demonstrated by a declaration through the lives of the believers who are the just who live by faith. And Scripture teaches that God will be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. What does that mean? What that means is that God will be right to have declared his people as justified. Do you get that? In other words, Jesus says, my brother here is a just man. And in the judgment, he will be found to be justified for having said so. See, God can't just say, okay, you're just. There are conditions to him saying that. He can't just say, okay, I'm just going to say that you're a just person. I've imputed my righteousness to you. You are a just man. You are a just woman. The onlooking universe is going to say, you are justified for having said so. And God's name is going to be on the line in the judgment for having said, this person is just because they believe in Jesus. They are just because their belief translated into an experience that caused them to have my righteousness revealed through their lives so that when people see them, they see the life of Jesus Christ. Do you have any questions about why I declare them to be just? And the onlooking universe will say, let God be true, but every man a liar. God has proven himself to produce a people that have the righteousness of Jesus Christ, that have the character of Jesus Christ perfectly demonstrated in their lives. So do you realize that God has put his name on the line to justify us? God is putting the authority, the righteousness, the truthfulness of His name on the line when He puts His stamp of approval on us and says, you are a just man, you are a just woman by faith. He is putting His name, His character, His authority on the line. And the devil is saying, God, you can declare them to be righteous, but I'm going to show you that they really aren't righteous. And the sad thing is, is that much of the Christian world has bought into the idea that God will declare you to be righteous even when you really are not. And that plays right into the devil's hand in the great controversy in the judgment. Because the devil has said all along, nobody can keep the law of God. But Jesus is saying, the people that I justify, they will keep the law of God. They will have the faith of Jesus and they'll keep the commandments of God. So in the judgment, the name of God is on the line. Let God be true, but every man a liar. 
as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and mightest overcome when thou art judged. And you know what? By the grace of Jesus Christ, I pray with all of my heart that through the power of Jesus Christ working in my life, God will not be ashamed of my name in the judgment. That's a powerful thing to think about. You know, Ellen White says in Great Controversy, I believe it's page 489, it's somewhere in the 480s, that when we sin, the devil runs to the heavenly beings and says, Aha! There's your professed people and look what I just got them to do again. And Ellen White says, if we would see what Satan does every time we sin, we would haste to confess our sins and to make them right. Because we are, we are not only profaning God's name, blaspheming God's name among the heathen, the devil runs to God and says, there's the group of people that claim to be justified by faith and look what I got them to do again and again and again. You really think that they're just? I don't think so, God. Let's just wait until you close probation and we'll see what they'll be like when you close probation because I've shown so many times already what they're like. And you know, one of the brothers was asking me, what happens if we do sin? Because invariably we as human beings fall into sin. We don't have to, by the way. First John 2 teaches, John says, My little children, these things I write unto you, that you sin not. But if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Do you realize that the forgiveness of God is God's plan B? Even after the fall of man? After the fall of man, Scripture is teaching us, I write these things to you that you sin not. That's God's plan A. God needs more plan A Christians. More plan A Seventh-day Adventists. Now, if you do sin, don't get discouraged. Jesus will take you right where you are and pick you right back up. He loves you and He's not going to leave you in the pit of sin. If you have true sorrow for your sin and you repent, He'll pick you right back up. So we have a gracious and merciful God. He will forgive us. But it was never His plan for us to sin in the first place. And when we think about the vindication of God's name, rather than receiving forgiveness so that we can keep sinning to get salvation, it changes our experience. But I pray that when my name comes up in the judgment, that God's name will be honored and glorified through the life He has lived through me based on my choice to surrender to Him. And I hope that all of you will choose to have that experience as well. Let's now, in verses 5 through 9, Paul basically tears down the idea that we can sin more to receive more grace. He, he goes on and he says in verse 5, But if our righteousness come in the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance as I speak as a man? God forbid, for then how shall God judge the world? Verse 7, For if the truth of God hath more, hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner, and not rather as we be slanderously reported? And as some affirm that we say, Let us do evil that good may come whose damnation is just. This is what Paul is saying. He's like, you know what? People are going out there slanderously. They're slandering what I'm saying. And they're saying that the more I sin, the more grace I will receive from God. Therefore, why don't I just keep sinning more so I will experience more of God's grace? Because I heard the, the Apostle Paul teach that. And then others who are with that brother or sister are saying, yeah, I did too. In the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. Yes, we both heard Paul say that let us do evil that good may come. And Paul is saying, I never taught that. And if they are saying that, their damnation is just. The gospel does not give license to sin. And then what he does after that, and then verse 9 he says, we've proved that the Jews and the Gentiles, that they are all under sin. Whether you are a professed believer or a non-believer, you have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And in verses 10 through 18, he shows 
the natural bent of the fallen human nature. Notice in verse 10, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. Notice, where does the bent to go against God start? It says, there is none that understandeth. Where is that? What part of the body is that? It's in the mind. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. And when the mind is turned away from God, the rest of the body follows. And you see that in the next verses. Verse 12, they've become unprofitable. Verse 13, their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their list, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. And you notice that the tongue basically translate what the mind is thinking. The tongue translates what the mind is thinking. So what you think the tongue speaks. It's interesting that the 144,000, it says, in their mouth is found no guile, and the word for guile means the same thing as deceit, yet the natural human tendency is to speak deceit. So God's last day people, they gain the victory over this experience towards doing wrong. And you continue going on. Verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. Verse 17, the way of peace have they not known. And notice verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Notice, without the gospel, there is no fear of God. Yet with the gospel, the first angel's message proclaims, fear God, give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. So the gospel prepares you to receive the three angels' messages. And of course, the everlasting gospel is the first angel's message. It's talking about all mankind. When it says that there is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after, all of mankind their natural tendency is to go against God. And you come to verse 18, then you see that there's no fear of God before their eyes. And then when you come to verse 19, we see, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. So in other words, look, all the world is guilty before God. Whether you are a believer or a non-believer, all of you have sinned and come short of the glory of God. In fact, he says that in verse 23. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Which is why all of us need the gospel. You see what Paul has done? He comes right out and at the beginning of chapter 1, he can hardly contain himself. And so he says, I'm separated to the gospel of God. Jesus Christ came according to the seed of David, or came of the seed of David according to the flesh. He's resurrected from the dead according to the spirit of holiness. He is the Son of God with power. And the gospel is the message of the just shall live by faith. And the righteousness of God is demonstrated in those who have the gospel experience. But then he says, you know what, here's why we all need that experience. We all need that transforming, dunamis, power experience of the gospel. Because whether we are a wicked person who is out on the streets shooting drugs, murdering, all of that awful stuff, or whether we're a professed believer who are profaning or blaspheming God's name among the heathen, we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God, and we all need a Savior. We all need the Gospel. And so, when you read the first three chapters, when you come to the point where you realize, I am no better than anybody else. My sins are as bad as anybody else. I need a Savior just like everybody else. Then the Gospel becomes so sweet. Because it's something that we all need. And you go from being condemned to each from being condemned to eternal damnation to receiving the free gift of everlasting life. Isn't that amazing? But 
again, we want to get into exactly how we can receive this gift. So let's continue on. Verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So here's the apparent contradiction. In Romans chapter 2, verse 13, it says that the doers of the law shall be justified. But in Romans chapter 3, it says, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified. So, is that a contradiction? And it's not. All Paul is saying is, is that you can't work your way to justification. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And if you tried to do all these good works, you'd just be trying to, it'd be like paying off a debt. You'd be earning your way back into the good graces of God. That's not salvation. That's not justification. However, when you receive salvation, you will live a righteous life, and only those who are living obedient lives will be justified. But it's Christ's righteousness being demonstrated through you. So you, of your own self, cannot work your way to heaven. Verse 21 is where Paul starts to introduce the beauty of the gospel. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Verse 22. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So notice this. The righteousness of the law is manifested. The righteousness of God is given to those by the faith of Jesus Christ to all who believe and upon all who believe. There's no difference because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So any of you who believe, you will receive this righteousness. So this gets back to Romans chapter 1. What does it mean to believe? Now Paul's talking about it again in Romans 3, and he's going to build on it in Romans 4. If you believe, you will receive this righteousness. And how is it that you receive it? It's by the faith of Jesus Christ. When you believe, this belief is the same as faith. It's by the faith of Jesus Christ. We talked about last hour that in order to receive the faith of Jesus Christ, we must be crucified with Christ. So that nevertheless I live yet not I, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of Jesus Christ. So, this belief is possible when we surrender to Jesus. And we'll get into more detail when we get into Romans chapter 4, which will be in our next session. Now notice, verse 24 how are we justified notice being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus and this is clearly talking about Christ's sacrifice for our sins on the cross do you realize that this salvation is a free gift of grace how many of you deserve do you realize none of us deserve this? God didn't have to do this. He only did it because He loved us. He wanted to redeem us. He wanted us to receive this gift. And it's free. You don't have to pay anything for it. And the crazy thing is that despite the fact that it's free, so many turn away from it. There is a price. It came at an infinite price. Jesus paid that price. But it's free for us. But there are conditions. We must choose to accept it. And we must choose to surrender and accept the conditions upon which God gives this gift to us. But we are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. So, we're justified by the grace of God through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus and God has set Jesus forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood. Now, I'll just mention this briefly. 
But this word propitiation, it comes from the Greek word hilasterion, and this word is used in the book of Hebrews in relation to the mercy seat in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. This gets directly to the concept of the blotting out of sin at the end of judgment in the final atonement. You, some of you may not have gotten that. That's okay. Keep studying. Some of you may have gotten that, but I did want to mention it. Jesus is our propitiation. With His blood through His sacrifice, He will blot out our sins in the judgment. In context of all have sins. From the short of the door. We're going to study all of the I want to bring it some more. John the Baptist was born filled with the Holy Spirit. How do you line up that from the context of all have sins? Right. So the question is, John the Baptist was born with the Holy Spirit. How do you line that up um, with the concept of all of sin? You know, well, no. Scripture teaches that whatsoever is not of faith is sin, right? Did John the Baptist ever doubt? He, he questioned, are you he that was promised or should we look for another? Then when Jesus sent the message back, he, his faith was confirmed. But my point is this, that John the Baptist, he inevitably, based on the record of Scripture, sinned as all other humans have sinned. The only human who hasn't is Jesus Christ. And we'll talk about that when we get to Romans 8 tomorrow, the difference between Christ and us in that respect, that He never sinned and we have. Now, verse 25, we see that God had set forth Jesus to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. So when we receive forgiveness of sin, Christ can declare His righteousness in our lives for the sins in our lives that are part of our past. So I come to Jesus, I confess my sins, He's faithful and just to forgive me my sins and to cleanse me of all of my unrighteousness. So all the sins of my past are now forgiven. They are not counted against me. But just as Jesus has forgiven me, He will also cleanse me and enable me to live a righteous life by faith. And then verse 26, to declare, I say at this time, His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of Him which believeth in Jesus. So God is just to justify us because those that He justifies have the experience of salvation, of righteousness, who, people who live just like Jesus. And then he wraps up chapter 3. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. So we have nothing to boast about. We can't brag and say, look how righteous I am. Because we know that we are sinful and that without Jesus we are nothing. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. And he says in verse 29, Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and uncircumcision through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid, yea, we establish the law. So Paul concludes chapter 3 by saying, Righteousness by faith exalts the law because those who are justified will live obedient lives. And what I want you to see as we wrap up this session, Romans chapter 2 and Romans chapter 3 and, and the last half of chapter 1 teach that all of sin and come short of the glory of God, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, a professed believer or not a believer, all are guilty before God. We are all subject to the judgment of God. We all have sin and come short. We all need a Savior. We as God's professed believers, we have prof we have. Um, profaned his name among the heathen and God is looking for a group of people through whom he can declare to be righteous in the judgment and they will be found to be righteous in the judgment and God's name will be vindicated through their lives and I pray that we will be that generation. Let's have a brief word of prayer. Take a short break. Or we have a question? Sorry. You said that God... Christ was just in justifying us. Yes. Um, and he will be proved so in the judgment. Yes. 
walk off the one who dies, Christ declares him just, but he's still struggling with some sin, and he dies in that condition. Okay. Um, and then you mentioned another thing that. Those Can we do one question at a time? Okay. So, the first question is, what happens if God declares someone to be just? and they're still struggling with sin, and then they die. And my simple answer to that question is, if God declares you to be just, that means you're fully surrendered to Him, and you're not struggling. You're not falling into sin. You might be tempted by that sin, but you're not giving into it. So you can't be declared to be just if you're living in sin. Yeah. Well, I, I guess it depends on what you mean by the word struggle. What does it mean to struggle with sin? It's one thing to be tempted. If you're tempted, a temptation is not a sin. A temptation is only becomes sin if you give in to the temptation. James chapter 1 clearly teaches that when lust is conceived, then, then it is sin. But if you're tempted, that is not sin. Jesus was tempted and that wasn't a sin for him. God justifies those who are fully surrendered to him. That's right. That's the message of justification by faith. Full surrender to the Lord. 100%. Crucify with Christ day by day, I die daily. It's a day-by-day -day experience. So you don't sin. The question is not whether I sin. The question is, what is God calling us to do? Do we surrender our lives fully to Him? Are we crucified with Christ 100% every day? And Scripture teaches that we can be. It doesn't... We don't, the problem with, with us as humans is we will see what Scripture teaches and then we line up our human experience with what Scripture teaches, and then inevitably what we will do is we'll say, well, the Bible says this, but my human experience is this, so I guess the Bible's wrong. And that's... Right, but, but what ends up happening is, is we will reinterpret the Bible to mean something that it doesn't say to fit our human experience. And what Scripture is teaching is that God will be just, and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus because those who are just, they have the experience that Jesus had on this earth. And I don't know if you were here in the first hour, but when it says the just shall live by faith, the word just comes from the Greek word dikaios, which is the same word to describe Jesus, Jesus in at least three places of Scripture. So those who are just, they are living the righteous life of Jesus by His faith. And that is why that message of justification by faith is the third angel's message in verity because the third angel's message in verity is the message that produces a group of people who are like Jesus, who will lighten the earth with the glory of his character and anything short of that will not get us to the loud cry message. When, when he fully confessed his sin and fully was repentant of it, not while he was living in sin. No, Ellen White says in Patriarchs and Prophets that David was not a man after God's own heart while he was committing adultery with her. And people try to use that to say David was a man after God's own heart, he committed adultery with Bathsheba, therefore I can do whatever I want and be a man after God's own heart. And yet Ellen White says David was not a man after God's own heart while he was committing sin with Bathsheba. Yes. When you are just, you are declared just, you are sealed. You are declared just when God has transformed your heart to make you like Him. And, and a good illustration is the parable of first the blade, then the ear, then the full corn in the ear. That plant is perfect at every stage, but not much. But when it first comes up out of the ground, it's not ready to be harvested. It hasn't reached full maturity, but it's perfect for the stage that it's at. It's not, it doesn't have any blemishes, and it continues to grow in grace. If that plant has a deformity, that deformity will, will eventually become more and more pronounced, and when you try to harvest 
and, and crises is the, the, a, a plant of corn. When you try to harvest that plant of corn, the corn will be defective and, and useless for, um, for, for eating because it's spoiled. And so what the, the point is is that at every stage of your life and your growth experience, as long as you are fully surrendered to Jesus, having surrendered everything in your life that you know He wants you to surrender, then He declares you to be righteous. Can you fall after Yes, you can fall after you've experienced this, but that's plan B. First John says, I write to you that you sin not, but if any man sin, you have an advocate, and you will receive forgiveness, but it was not God's purpose for you to fall. So when sanctification is the work of a lifetime, it's to maintain that surrendered experience every day. So the moment you are justified, you have the ability to live above sin for the rest of your life. That's right. And Romans chapter 6 will make that very clear. If you come back tomorrow for Romans 6, we'll see that Paul says, sin shall not have dominion over you. You're, you're under the law, not under the law, but under grace. Just before that, he says, Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, for death hath no more dominion over him. In other words, Christ doesn't keep coming down and dying over and over again and because death has no more dominion over him and because we've been raised to walk in newness of life, sin has no more dominion over us if we stay in a surrendered condition. So that's a good stopping point for um, now let's take a short break. What's that? I mean, you know, if I said grave sin, I mean, sin is sin. And of course, Ellen White says that, that there are certain sins that are of greater magnitude. And she says pride is one of the worst. So, yeah. Hey, one last question. We need to wrap this session up. Whenever we repent of a sin, it's yes. the same sin that plagues us every time. So when you check it out, our fact, we do not really repent. You know, we have not yet surrendered. Yeah. Yeah, repentance, which is a key element of the gospel which you're talking about, true repentance is repentance that needs not to be repented of. Yeah. So when we truly repent, we don't go back. If we do, we have an advocate, but it's not God's intention for us to go back. Let's take a short break and um, we can probably, if we just take like a five, ten minute break, then we can get through Romans 4 today, and then that will set us up to do Romans 6, 7, and 8 tomorrow. So let's just have a brief word of her. Father in heaven, thank you for these teachings of scripture about righteousness by faith. And as we transition into the faith of Abraham in Romans chapter 4, may we learn what it means to truly believe so that we can have this experience. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You will definitely want to be here for the next session. It will be a little bit shorter than the last two sessions on the faith of Abraham. This is the practical explanation of how to have righteousness by faith. So we'll see you in a few minutes.